Good to see you. Why don't we open our Bibles to the uh, Gospel of Mark? That's where we are at. We've been there for several months, actually almost a little over a year now. Gospel of Mark, we're in chapter 13, so open up there if you guys would like. We have Bibles in the back. Please feel free to grab one if you don't have one. Um, one other thing is you guys are opening up. Um, the guys from the band, Ives the Band, um, what a blessing to be able to have those guys here. Um, a handful of those guys are actually living down in L.A., kind of trying to get their music business off the road. Um, you guys, if you guys were blessed by them, you guys can pick up one of these CDs out there. They have a little table out there. It's a way for you guys to say thanks and to uh, say thank you to them personally as, uh, as they kind of had an opportunity to lead you guys in worship. They're a total uh, group of servants, uh, several of the guys in the band that help out with the band as well. Their dad is actually a pastor in Paso Robles, so... Um, yeah, they're great guys. They love Jesus, so happy to be able to uh, have them lead us in worship. So what we're going to be looking at here today is sort of a continuation of what we started about two weeks ago, and it really has to do with the subject matter of uh, last things, end-of-the-world type concepts as not just simply our end of the world, but also the end of the world for the disciples as they knew it. And it had to do with basically a twofold thing that we talked about. One, it started to do with and have to do with the destruction of the temple. The temple was the sum total of their world. In other words, you can look at the temple and the worship of the temple as being sort of the summary of everything Jewish. Uh, we mentioned a few weeks ago that Jerusalem was basically a temple with a city. Um, in other words, the very central figure um, that in essence, sort of depicted what Israel was all about, was the temple. And what Jesus was basically saying to his disciples was that the temple was going to be destroyed. Not just simply destroyed, but more rightly replaced. That Jesus himself, through his work, through what he was about to do on the cross, would actually be replacing everything that the temple had formerly stood for. But Jesus also, it would seem as if, uh, described an event that would happen in the future that in some ways that would look very similar to what took place in the destruction of the temple, that one day the world would meet a place where Jesus would return, uh, he would come back again, and this time when Jesus comes back again, not only would he just simply make Jerusalem right by replacing its temple with himself, but Jesus would come back and make all things right, universally. Jesus would bring salvation ultimately, completely with himself, and those that love Jesus will be brought up and transformed by this new world that Jesus would bring about. And those that reject Jesus, those that don't see the value or love Jesus, would ultimately find themselves facing this judgment that Jesus ultimately would bring. So again, like I said, this is one of those subject matters that, depending upon the type of background that you've been involved in, be depending upon the type of TV programs you watch on Christian, Christian television, depending on the type of Christians that you know in your life, you have maybe either completely been totally jaded and become completely nothing more than a cynic when it comes to prophecy, or you have sort of this complete obsession with it to the opposite extreme, or you're just sort of apathetic. And one of the things I really want to emphasize is don't let those people that have abused prophecy dissuade you or create sort of a cynicism in you, nor don't become somebody that becomes so obsessed with it that you somehow leave Jesus out of the entirety of the message of prophecy. What we want to try to do is challenge ourselves to make certain that we just allow Jesus to speak for himself. One of the things that we've been saying from the very beginning as we've been taking a look at the life of Jesus is that Jesus needs to be one who speaks for himself. One of the problems with our modern culture is that we have a tendency to edit the message of Jesus, and we edit Jesus towards our liking. In other words, there's certain things that we like about Jesus. 
We listen to those. We adapt them, in, uh, adopt them into our lives. We adapt our lives maybe around those types of things. Other things that Jesus says, we might be de- based upon the types of ways it's gotten spun in our culture. We've gotten a little bit sort of um, apologetic about. Not apologetic in the good way, but apologetic in the sense of like, uh, yeah, I'm sorry that Jesus said those things because who knows? Jesus didn't really know exactly what he's talking about. That's sometimes the way it comes across. But what we've been trying to say from the very beginning is that what we really need is we need to let Jesus define for us who Jesus is. Otherwise, what ends up happening is that we define for ourselves who Jesus is. And at the end of the day, what that means is that we've created our own God. We've created a God that is not powerful to save. He's not mighty to save. He's not beautiful. He's not all-powerful. He's not all-terrifying and yet all-tender. That's not the Jesus that we oftentimes associate with. So we need to allow Jesus to define for himself who he is, what he's all about, what he's come to do, and what he will ultimately bring about in the latter days. So in spite of the fact that Jesus' message oftentimes gets hijacked, oftentimes Jesus' messages uh, get sort of reprogrammed and end up sounding something kind of silly in our modern culture, we need to let Jesus be who Jesus is, that Jesus, if you trust him, the things that you agree with him, as well as the things that you may find hard to swallow about him, those things that you find exciting about Jesus, those things that you might find a little bit antiquated. If you allow Jesus to be Jesus, he'll rescue you. He will save you. He will be your God. Jesus put it this way. Those who are ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of them. Those who honor me, those who recognize me, I will fight for them. I will stand for them. I will not be ashamed of them. The point of the matter is this, is that we are in danger of making our own version of a God that at the end of the day doesn't exist. We're all in danger of that. We all need to be aware of that. And the antidote to that is to let Jesus speak for Jesus, let Jesus reveal to us who he is, what he says, the things that he has to say, about the times and days in which he lived, but also about the times and days in which perhaps we live right now, but or maybe not, it might be yet in the future. So what I want to do is I want to finish up what we started last week, and we'll pick it up at around verse 28 of Mark chapter 13. I'll read the passage, and then we'll begin to take a look at it right after I pray, because we need prayer for this. Verse 28 says this, From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender... And puts out leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that it's near at very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no man knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son of Man, only the Father. Verse 33, he says, be on guard, keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves his home, he puts his servants in charge, each with their work, and he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, midnight, or when the cock crows in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is the message that Jesus pronounces for us to hear. Let's pray. God, we ask for your help, and we need your wisdom. God, we need ability. We need humility, God, to be able to understand this. God, we, we just confess that in a lot of ways, these words are hard to even understand. 
But God, we know that to you there's no confusion. So we're asking for the mind of Christ to be able to understand these things. God, we pray that you would really just allow us to see your work, your purposes in and through these things, Jesus, that you've said that are hard to understand in a lot of ways. Too much, too many arguments have been made over this particular passage and the passages previous to this. And God, we pray that we would not find ourselves in that place, but we would find ourselves in a place where doing what Jesus said to do, which is to be awake, to be alert, to live as if we're ready. So God, we ask for your help to be able to do that. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that we've been mentioning, like I said previously, is that the prophecy, the things that Jesus has to say in chapter 13, seems to be a type of a message that needs to be read with a lens kind of like bifocals, meaning so that you can see near and see far. So in other words, it would seem as if in the immediate context, Jesus has been talking to his disciples about the destruction of the temple. And the temple was sort of, like I'd already mentioned, sort of the culmination. It was a summary of everything that stood for Judaism. And yet Jesus was telling his disciples that this era, this era of Judaism, this era of the temple being central in Judaism, is going to be no longer. It will come to an abrupt halt. In other words, the world as you know it will be over. Everything that you've understood about this world by way of the lens of the temple will be completely destroyed. Uh, in some ways, it's kind of like I've mentioned before in a couple different services. I'm sure I've mentioned this one. It's kind of like if you went to a whole you know, host of kindergartners and first graders and second graders, and their idea, their depiction, their understanding of a world of fun and joy and happiness is Disneyland, because at Disneyland, it's the happiest place on earth. It's a place that you go, and you meet people that you've never met before, these characters that you watch in the movies. You have this great, amazing opportunity to go spend time with, you know, fantasy-type people, and it's the funnest place on earth. But it'd be like someone coming to these classrooms all throughout America, perhaps even all throughout the world, saying, Disneyland, Disney World, and I don't know if it's called Disney World Tokyo, anywhere where there's a Disneyland, Disney World, Pixar, anything related or some sort of a capillary from uh, Disney is going to be completely obliterated. World as you know it will completely be gone. Fun as you have come to know it will be gone. Like, you'd freak out a lot of kids. That's, that's, that's hell. That's not good. Life is over. And in some ways, what Jesus is saying is the way that you've understood to worship God by way of the temple will be gone forever. So that's sort of the near fulfillment of this prophecy because in AD 70, everything that Jesus said happened. Then the far-off type prophecy seems to take place when Jesus begins to talk about and every eye will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. This seems to talk about a far-off, distant date when Jesus, as well as other New Testament writers, depict the fact that one of these days, this world is going somewhere. In other words, God is not idly sitting by, disinterested, or impersonal. But that God is very personal, very interested, and very involved in the affairs of this world. And sometimes there are moments when we look at God and we wonder, why is he not more involved? And yet, oftentimes it's because we just don't understand how involved God is or the ways in which God is involved. One day, the Bible will tell us, we will begin to catch glimpses of that. God leaves himself these little hints in this world that we can identify and understand that he is actually actively involved in this world. But the Bible tells that Jesus seems to depict that one day in the future there will come a day of reckoning, a day what we would describe as judgment, or a day, you can maybe look at it this way, where a final verdict will be rendered. 
that Jesus will come. The light of God will come. And surely as the earth is covered by the waters, so it will be covered by the glory of God. This is where earth is heading. That Jesus basically landed on the shores of Jerusalem, kind of like the allied forces landed on the shores of Normandy. And his first coming, he conquered death and sin. He died on the cross for our sins. The second coming will come to basically bring into this world a brand new heavens, a brand new earth. All that basically was identified with this old earth, that is death, destruction, deception, lying. All of these things that we basically try to protect ourselves in this life will be gone. That's why the book of Revelation will ultimately say, and he'll wipe away every tear. Tears are associated with being lied to. Tears are associated with having something done against you. Tears are associated with having things stolen from you. Tears are associated with death. And Jesus says, because there will be no more sin, no more death, there will be no more tears. This is what Jesus talks about when he finally comes again. This seems to be what he's identifying and pointing out. Now, the thing is that there's a lot of ideas that oftentimes kind of surround about this. And like I said, it would seem as if, first of all, in verses 28 on, Jesus is talking about the immediate destruction of the temple. I'll give you an example of this. Jesus says this. This is truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all of these things take place. Honestly, this verse, verse 30, chapter 13, book of Mark, is one of the most hotly debated verses, probably the entire Bible. All right, I'll, I'll just be straight up and be honest and say that. And I'm not going to somehow tell you that I am absolutely certain I know the complete answer to this. But um, oftentimes this verse, especially if you were around back in the like 70s and even prior to that, you realize that this way that this verse was basically viewed was that this generation that Jesus is talking about was the generation that saw the birth of Israel. So what was it? Back in, uh, was it 60, 48? Sorry, right, 48? Back in 48 when Israel was rebirthed as a brand new nation, uh, there's a lot of prophecy buffs that were saying a generation we know emphatically because the Bible tells us that a generation is 40 years. So this basically led to a lot of crazy prophecies back in the early 80s that Jesus would come again in 1988. Well, that was the year I graduated from high school. Uh, Jesus didn't come back again. And so this has kind of led, like I said, to a lot of kind of silliness that people look at and like, see, prophecies don't, aren't, they're not real. It's a joke. People make crazy prophecies prophecies and statements around prophecy they don't happen it just sort of belittles it and the tendency is to walk away from prophecies and say it doesn't it's silly it's ridiculous and to not believe in prophecies or to belittle prophecy but like one of the things I want you to understand is that over 300 times throughout the Bible there are prophecies that point to Jesus's second coming or you can basically look at it this way one out of 13 every one out of 13 scriptures is a prophecy about Jesus coming again so I want to make certain that even though there are people that make silly statements that don't come to pass, and even when 88 didn't come to pass, there are others that are like, well, maybe we were off by 10 years on our genealogy. Maybe it's uh, 98. Uh, 98 came and went. Nothing. Maybe it's a uh, 60-year generation. Uh, again, 2008. Nada. So here's my point. When are we going to stop trying to claim to know more than Jesus and stop trying to figure out dates as to when Jesus is going to come back? And rather than trying to determine when Jesus is going to come back, realize what Jesus is telling us about his coming back, it's to simply be ready. So this is my my opinion, just purely my opinion. I think the generation that Jesus is probably referring to 
seems to be most likely the generation that he was talking to. Peter, James, John, Andrew, the rest of his crew, and the destruction of the temple. Because if that's the case, then it actually came to pass. In other words, what Jesus said actually did happen. That was the generation. They saw these things happen. They saw the judgment upon the temple, upon their world. Again, that does not say it doesn't mean to omit the fact that there is going to be one day a future judgment that will one day come, yet in the future. But that seems to be the likely reading of the text. So again, I want to just jump right back in. And like I said, if that's something that you disagree on, that's totally fine. These are non-essential things that we are, as a church, going to make an effort to not argue, not fight over, not divide over. These are things that we can agreeably disagree on lovingly. That's the way non-essential issues that don't have to do with salvation should be worked through, talked about. With that being said, I want to basically jump in and basically look at three things. And what I'll do is I'll look at them in the form of questions. Because it would seem as if what Jesus is really focusing on and spending the majority of his time communicating is this issue of being awake, staying awake. This seems to be what Jesus is talking about. He says it at least five different occasions. Stay awake. Be awake. Pay attention. I'll get to that in a second here. And then there's at least one negative thing that Jesus says, uh, stay awake lest you fall asleep. So it seems as if the theme that Jesus wants for his disciples to adopt into their lives, into their thinking, into their living, is that they basically, in and of themselves, they would live as if they're ready. Live with the anticipation that one day, Jesus would indeed, in fact, come again. This seems to be what Jesus is saying. That just like Jesus came the first time, paid for our sin, died on the cross, rose again from the dead, Jesus also will come again to completely restore this broken, fractured world in one final act of restoration, of redemption. That seems to be what Jesus is saying. With that final act of restoration and redemption will also come a verdict, or another word, a judgment. Jesus will bring a final rendering or final judgment. And hopefully this will begin to make sense as we begin to look at this. So the first thing that I want to take a look at is, one, how serious is Jesus about, and I'll describe it as this, living ready, because it seems to be sort of the summary of what Jesus is saying. Be ready. Live your life as if you're ready for his return. So we'll ask the question, how serious is Jesus about living ready? Second thing, we'll ask the question, what does living ready look like? Because we need some sort of a a model or a prototype of what living ready looks like. And then finally, we'll ask sort of the question, how do we motivate ourselves to live ready? How do we motivate ourselves to live ready? What motivates us? What fuels us? What keeps us going? So let's begin to ask the question, how serious is Jesus about living ready? This is going to be the quickest of all my points. First thing, again, five different times. Verse 33, Jesus says, be on guard. Verse 33, again, he says, keep awake. Verse 34 says, stay awake. 35, stay awake. 37, stay awake. And this is just a short period of verses. So how serious is Jesus about this? Very serious. He says it five times. He says it once in a negative. Lest you fall asleep is what he says. So basically, Jesus, we can, we can surmise from this statement, he's very, very serious to make certain that we as his disciples, if you follow Jesus... That we follow Jesus by being alert, by being awake, staying, staying alert, paying attention, living as if we're ready. The second thing that I want to basically jump into is this question. What does living ready look like? 
Is there a template or sort of a prototype as to what living ready looks like? This is what we want to kind of tackle, try to understand next. Now, it's important for us to understand. I'll read the verse that Jesus seems to imply here that I think is important for us to understand how this sort of plays out in the remainder of the New Testament. But take a look at verse 34. It says this. Jesus gives this little parable, this little story right in the middle of this, as if he recognizes that not just simply giving sort of a, a command is enough. Jesus says, all right, I'll tell a command in a storyline. All right? Some of you are writers. You like to write books. And you realize that sometimes the best theology that can ever be swallowed by anybody is tell it in a narrative. Tell it in a story. All right? Probably one of the best examples of this is C.S. Lewis. You read C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia, you're swallowing huge doses of theology. Some of you are like, I didn't know that. That's because C.S. Lewis is so good. Okay, this is what Jesus is doing. He's like, I want people to understand theologically how important it is to stay ready. Tell a story. Jesus tells a story. He says, it's like a man going on a journey. Obviously, the man probably is a reference to him. He's going to go away. But what he does is he leaves in charge his servants. And here's what he says. He says, each with his own work. And then he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. So take a look at what I kind of pointed out here. We see, first of all, that there are servants that are given delegated authority. They're placed in charge. The second thing, they're supposed to do this through their work. There's something for them to do. Something for them to actually act upon with their hands, with their minds, how they live their life. And then finally, he says that you're supposed to do this in such a way so as to actually stay alert, stay awake. Or the way I described it here, living as if you're ready for Jesus' return. This seems to be what Jesus is emphasizing. Okay, so with that being said, I want to begin to try to take a look at, first of all, what living ready is not. Next slide. I don't think this is living ready. <sighs> all right, it's funny. I don't know how I stumbled across this yesterday, but I was watching just a brief little show, a snippet of this, and there's a show. It's a whole show about doomsday preppers, and these are people that actually are waiting for Armageddon to happen. They're waiting for some sort of invasion. Uh, watched a show, an episode yesterday, where this guy was absolutely convinced that Russia is going to invade, and he's got some sort of a huge bunker, three-story bunker with lots of food. He lives by himself, of course, um, and, and he's basically spends all of his time alone three months out of a year underground in a bunker. When he's not underground, he comes out, shops at Costco, uh, sharpens his gun skills, raises dogs, goes back underground, and waits for Russia to invade. This is not at all what Jesus is talking about in terms of being ready. And unfortunately, this is sort of rubbed off in a lot of different types of Christian backgrounds and Christian concepts that, uh, you know, it's ironic because actually on the show, the guy that they were interviewing had this huge crucifix dangling from his, I don't know, Ford pickup truck. And of course, it was a Ford. And um, the point of the matter is, is that it was sort of this depiction that he's a Christian, fundamentalist, of course, and he's waiting for Armageddon to happen. And the way he's doing this is he's prepping for doomsday by living apart from society, living apart from culture. This is not at all what Jesus intended. This is not basically someone um, doing what Jesus says, that using their work for the purpose of staying awake, delegating, using their delegated authority that's been given to them. So I want to basically point out three things that I think Jesus is describing. There's a lot more that I can basically point out, but I only have time for three. I'll try to get into some of these and sort of give some examples with regard to each one of them. But here's the point. Throughout the remainder of the New Testament, what you'll find, like in all the writings of Paul and Peter and some of these other guys, what you need to understand is that basically the New Testament is broken down kind of like this. And this is a very loose way of breaking it down. One, 
the first four chapters, the first four books, we call those uh, storyline or gospel. These are narrative. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they actually read like you're reading a book, like a storyline. But once you get to the book, and actually the book of Acts is also written like that as well. But once you get to what's called the epistles, all right, which is like written by a guy by the name of Paul the Apostle or Peter or James and some of these people, what you'll find in these is they don't read like a storyline. And there's a reason for that. These read more like a manual. In other words, live like this, act like this, think like this. When you find yourself confronted, act this way. If somebody offends you, forgive them. It reads sort of like a manual as a how-to. Here's what you should do in these circumstances. What you need to understand is that the way the rest of the New Testament was written, it was written in such a way as to sort of take the teachings, encapsulate it in the life of Jesus, and to begin to live them out. I'll give you an example. So for, if, with the life of Jesus, when Jesus says, it's like a man going on a journey, he's going away, but he's delegating authority to those that are left in charge, the servants left in charge, and that they are to stay, awar- stay alert, stay ready. Well, what you find throughout the remainder of the New Testament is guys like Paul, trying to ask the questions, how do we stay alert? How do we stay ready? What does staying ready look like? How does not falling asleep play into our lives? What, what, what does it look like in our life? And the first and foremost example that they will ultimately draw from is the life of Jesus. Jesus is the premier example of someone who always stayed alert and always stayed ready, never fell asleep. This is an amazing thing, right? But here's what they're basically doing. And they begin to play this out throughout the remainder of the New Testament. So there's three ways in which I want to try to just kind of give you guys some sort of kind of big themes to kind of view with regard to what staying alert, staying ready, living ready looks like. So the first one basically will have to do with, uh, you know, in other words, living with the belief that Jesus will return. It will affect the way that you live, first of all, personally. First of all, affect you personally. Titus chapter 2, verse 11, uh, 3 through, Titus, ver, Titus chapter 2, verse 11, going on to about chapter 3, basically says a lot of very important things. I'll try to summarize it for you and read some important passages out of this. Here's what Paul says. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age while we wait For the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that his very own, that are his very own, that are eager to do good. So here's what Paul is saying. He's saying that what God has done is that even though while we're living in this present life, we're waiting the second coming. We're waiting for the glorious appearing of Jesus to come again. Jesus was pure. Jesus died on the cross to take away our defilement, to give us purity. So here's what Paul's saying, is that one of the things that will impact you, if you live with an understanding that Jesus is coming again, then you will live in a way that will keep yourself pure. In other words, holiness. You will do, you will fulfill what it means to be holy as God is holy. Let me try to put it this way, because I think sometimes we have some false assumptions or false ideas about what it means to be holy. And what happens, I think it sort of gets all mystical. Like, oh, holy are like people that spend eight hours on their knees praying every single day. And what happens is we sort of create these caricatures, and then immediately in our mind we're like, I can never do that. I guess I will just be doomed to a life of unholiness for as long as I live. And why even try if that's what holiness is? If holiness is looking like, acting like, living like Mother Teresa, 
I could never attain to that, so I might as well give up. Let me try to demystify this for you a little bit. It simply boils down to this. Being holy is simply loving the things that Jesus loves within your life. It's just loving the things that Jesus loves within your life. Jesus doesn't love defilement. Jesus came to cure our defilement. So if we find ourselves dealing with defilement on a regular basis or doing things that lead to our own personal defilement, that if the love of God is at work in our hearts, if we're living with this awareness that Jesus will one day come back again, then what we will do is that we will try to posture, position ourselves in a spot whereby we will do what Jesus wants us to do. We will take care of our hearts. We'll inspect ourselves. We'll be careful. And again, you got to be careful here because what happens is that you will come in contact with people that claim to know what holiness is. This is one of the problems oftentimes you'll find in the church. So you have some people that will say holiness is never drinking beer. Others will say, no, that's not holiness. Holiness is never drinking light beer. I mean, others are like, no, holiness is you never go to a rated R movie. Others are like, unless it's like Mel Gibson's, right? Passion of the Christ, that's rated R, all right? Others are like, no, holiness is, you know, you got to shop at, you know, Christian bookstores and you got to wear T-shirts that have Christian scriptures and themes. Or if you're going to play music, it's got to have somehow uh, a very clear, concise gospel message in it. If it's not, then you're not being holy. If you go to a Radar movie, you're not being holy. If you drink beer, you're not being holy. If you drink light beer, you're certainly not being holy. And what happens is sort of we begin to create and fabricate these rules upon what holiness is and what holiness is not. And this leads to a whole new form of oppression. You're not more free when you're living under that yoke. You're more bound. And some of you came from backgrounds like that. Jesus wants to set you free. If you're the person that promoted that type of stuff, Jesus wants to set you free from your self-righteousness. Because he's a good God. Because he loves you. He wants you to live in freedom. This is why Paul can say something like this. All things are lawful for me. Ultra-fundamentalist Christians freak out on that verse. They're like, wait a minute, that can't possibly mean all things. No, actually it does. All things. But Paul goes on to say, but not all things build me up. Not all things are good for me. Not all things demonstrate love to other people. So what Paul is saying, that his criteria, his standard for holiness is Jesus. Live like Jesus. Love like Jesus. Love the things that Jesus loves. And don't let anybody come in and begin to throw yokes of oppression upon you. If you're really going to be holy, here's what you got to do. If you're really going to be holy, these, these are the five steps you've got to follow every single day and do these types of things. And if you don't do these things, if you don't journal, if you don't read your Bible every single morning, if you don't wake up at four in the morning, if you don't do these specific things that are basically allocated according to certain churches, then somehow you're not being holy. Look, at the end of the day, holiness is simply loving what Jesus loves and this is why you need to be converted. I mean, if you're not a Christian, you're trying to love what Jesus loves, it's just, it's just a process in futility. You need a new heart. That's what salvation is. Jesus gives you a new heart. By giving you a new heart, you have a new engine inside of you that actually longs for the things of God. And what the Bible tells us is that those who have this hope in them, they purify themselves. Here's what 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says is, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, his second coming, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. Verse 3 says this, And everyone who has his hope in him purifies himself, just as he himself is pure. So a belief, a conviction, an understanding 
A theology that understands the fact that Jesus will come again will lead to personal holiness in your life. Let me give you an example to maybe from C.S. Lewis to kind of help us understand this even a little bit further. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. I think the verse is going to be up there. It's such a great passage. Here's what he says. We must train ourselves. This is actually out of a little essay that he wrote called The World's Last Night, which has to do with the second coming of Jesus, ironically. Here's what he says. We must train ourselves to ask more often how the thing which we are saying or doing or failing to do at each moment will look when the irresistible light streams in upon it, the second coming. That light which is so different from the light of this world. Women sometimes have the problem of trying to judge by artificial light how a dress will look by daylight. This is like the problem for all of us, to dress our souls not for the electric lights of the present world, but for the daylight of the next. The good dress is the one that will face that light, for that light will last longer. Here's what C.S. Lewis is saying. We dress ourselves not somehow to be accepted, to be affirmed by this present world, but to dress ourselves in light of the next. That is indeed coming. That will purify you. Such a great quote. Second thing is that a belief and an understanding of the fact that Jesus will come back again also affects us relationally. In other words, reconciliation instead of vengeance. Here's what I mean. When someone wrongs us, when someone offends us, steps on our toes, does something hurtful or painful to us, again, there's various degrees to this. For some, it just might be simple hurts, simple offenses. For some, it may be very bad offenses. It may be rape. It may be uh, some form of a really bad sin that was done against you. But if it's simply some form of, a, of an offense, anything, anything that's ever done against us, what typically happens when we're offended, we immediately have this propensity to run up to the throne, some throne that we arbitrarily discover, and we become sort of the judge. And not only do we become arbitrarily the judge, we appoint ourselves as the all-knowing judge, but we also appoint ourselves as the arresting officer, and we also appoint ourselves as the abusive prison guard. So here's what we do. When someone offends us, we immediately know why they did that to us, and we immediately act out ways in which we can bring judgment upon them. We immediately look for opportunities, ways in which we can get back at them, get even with them. But here's the problem. Rarely, rarely is our retaliation ever getting equal. We always end up giving a little bit more. You know why? Because we don't know how to measure properly. Being a judge, it's a seat far too big for us to sit in. We don't know how to judge properly. It's like asking two little children that are like under five years old, say, work out your own problems. They don't know how to do that. They can't do that. I mean, the kid whacked me. Great. I will whack him back, and I will also steal his toys. Other kid comes back, retaliates, and does something even worse. Kids don't know how to do that. The problem is we're just big kids. We don't know how to act justly. And this is one of the reasons why some of you might not like this verse, but I'm going to read it anyhow. Romans chapter 12, verse 17 says this. Repay no evil for evil. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. He goes on, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it for the wrath of God. He says, For it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. Then he goes on to say, To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, give him something to eat. How can we do that? 
if we have an understanding that Jesus is coming back again to make all the wrongs right, that allows us to prolong vengeance. That allows us to simply take my hands off of the circumstance and say, this is not mine to judge. I'm ill-equipped. I don't measure properly. And I don't even see properly. And I don't even know why the person did the thing that they did to me because I don't know what's going on inside their heart. But here's what the Bible very clearly teaches. God knows everything. God knows why they did the things that they did. God knows why they acted the way they did. God knows why they said the things that they did. And he will judge accordingly. When? Ultimately, the Bible tells us when he comes back again the second time. He will make all the wrongs to right. I want to read a quote from a guy by the name of Miroslav Volf. This is out of a book called Exclusion and Embrace. Love this quote. It's a great book. Um, it's really all about reconciliation. Miroslav Volf was a pastor. Uh, he's actually a professor now um, in a very prestigious college seminary. Um, he was a pastor in the former Yugoslavia uh, when it was under siege. And he was watching friends of his um, literally take sides and become you know, part of the army. And they would kill people. And he saw this very close, very up close and throughout the 90s. And then he ended up coming to the United States and being a professor there and a theologian. But here's what he says. It's a really powerful statement. He says, my thesis is that the practice of nonviolence, in other words, not retaliating, not acting vengefully, he says, the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. How? When? When Jesus comes back. But imagine speaking to people whose cities and villages have been plundered and burned and whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit, which is everything that he experienced, he says, your point to them, we should not retaliate. Why not? He says, I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is not legitimate when, uh, unless, uh, that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. If God does not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. Here's what he's saying. A belief that Jesus is coming back again to set the wrongs in this world to right is a very extremely powerful motivator to help us who struggle with offenses on regular occasions against us to maybe not thoroughly be at rest, but at least have a sample of rest. To at least somehow have a foretaste of what rest looks like. To be able to say, God, you know what needs to be done in this circumstance, in this situation. God, you know the wrong that was done against me. God, you know every little detail for me to prop myself up on the throne, for me to render a judgment. I will end up participating in injustice, just like was done against me. And I will become part of the sin issue of violence and problem and not become a solver of it. God, only you solve a belief that God will come again and set all the wrongs to right is a powerful motivator to cause us to trust him. Isn't that hard? This is the only reason why Paul can write in Romans chapter 12. When your enemy sins against you, feed him. If he's hungry, if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Vengeance is mine, says God. The only one who has the right to claim that. And Jesus tells us that in his second coming, when he comes again, that's precisely what he'll do. The final thing I'll take a look at is culturally, that when we understand a living with a belief that Jesus will return, it will not only affect us personally, in which we will find ourselves living in purity instead of defilement, it will also impact us and affect us relationally, 
we will embrace reconciliation instead of vengeance. And third, culturally. In other words, transformation instead of abandonment. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, a famous verse says this. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross, with minds set on earthly things. In other words, this is Paul say, Paul's way of basically saying they're not paying attention. They're not living aware. They're not living in a way in which they're aware of the fact that Jesus is going to come again. Instead, they're holding on to this earth, holding on to the ways of this earth, holding on to the ways of this world, and ultimately he says that they are enemies of the cross, enemies of everything that Jesus has come to do. Verse 20 says this, For our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we wait our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. So here's what Jesus is saying, or what Paul is saying uh, uh, about Jesus, that Jesus will come, and Jesus will restore and renew all things. He will take this broken body, and he will restore and renew it. But here's what Paul is also saying, is that we are citizens of heaven. Here's traditionally how this verse has oftentimes been uh, interpreted. Now what this means, that Jesus came from heaven to earth, and that our citizenship is in heaven. In other words, one day we will leave this horrible place, and then we will then one day go up into some place in the clouds where we will be with Jesus. What's very interesting here is that one scholar basically pointed out that the language that Paul uses here of citizenship is actually not language that's found in the Old Testament at all. It's language that's found throughout the Roman Empire, that Paul was a Roman citizen. Paul understood Roman citizenship, and here's the way Rome worked. What took place was Rome was led by a Caesar. Caesar would go into various cultures, various areas, say like France or England, went all the way up to kind of the area of Scotland. He'd go all the way down into the areas of Africa, North Africa, Alexandria, and so on and so forth. And what he would do, he would basically create states or provinces. And these states and these provinces were oftentimes fought by battles, or sometimes these states or provinces would be surrendered by way of kind of a, a peaceful uh, surrender. But regardless of the matter, what would happen is you would have these soldiers there, and they would win these battles, and they were citizens, creating citizens of other territories, of other states. Um, Rome did not want its citizens from Alexandria coming into Rome. They already had a food crisis. They didn't need people from Alexandria coming into Rome. They didn't need people from England coming down into Rome. They didn't need people from France coming into Rome. They didn't need that. What they did is they went into these other outlying areas and they made these provinces, these states. And the whole point of the matter was that as they became sort of identified as states of Rome, they began to sort of acclimate to the citizenship to the rules to the civilization to the culture of rome they were citizens of rome and here's what i think paul is saying jesus came into this world and he created a brand new state of people people that live according to the civilization of heaven we live in this world it's enemy occupied territory it's not fully under the submission of jesus yet in terms of transformation. But what Jesus has done is he's rescued us. If you're a believer, if you trust Jesus, you're part of this kingdom building project in which you are a citizen of this heaven, of, of heaven, that Jesus has redeemed you. You have God's life in you. And that being said, that being the case, in this world, we will live in a world that's full of brokenness, full of death, full of lies, full of deceit. But the language, the civilization of heaven is rather than lying, speaking truth. Rather than death, bringing life. Rather than vengeance, bringing forgiveness. All of this is language of heaven. All of this are actions and activities of heaven. And here's what Paul is saying. 
live as citizens of heaven throughout this world, bringing the kingdom wherever you're at, in your vocation, in school, in your dorms, in your families, if your mom hanging out with a bunch of kids on a park day, bringing the kingdom of heaven there. You have this opportunity, this amazing privilege and honor of as citizens, and Paul's way saying, is that we believe that one day Jesus will return. And here's what he says in verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus. Paul is not saying we wait for the day when we will be taken out of this earth and forever be gone from this planet. What Paul is saying is that we wait for the day when our Savior will return to this planet, but rid this planet of its filth and brokenness that has to do with this world system that was part of the government of a fallen angel. And he's already begun this work. This is the new heavens and the new earth that John says that he sees in the book of Revelation, that Jesus will take this broken heavens and broken earth and restore it and redeem it. And just as the waters cover the earth, said in the book of Isaiah, so will the glory of God cover this earth. Well, how is he doing this? He's begun this project right now through you. You're a citizen of heaven. How are you embodying this? How are you living this out? This is how God uses you to live according to the civilization of heaven, to love others that are hard to love. That's living according to the citizenship of heaven. To forgive others that are oftentimes offensive. This is living according to the citizenship of heaven. So here's the question, and I want to finish with, and I'm done. Here's the reality. How does all of this motivate us? How do we get motivated for this? Because here's the thing. I can finish right now and be like, all right, guys, go have a great day. Try to figure all this out on your own. And some of you will go and really work really hard and be like, okay, I'm going to do all this and be really good about this and be diligent and wake up every morning and journal and read my Bible and do everything that I can. And some of you will at some point begin to realize you'll hit a wall and you'll think, I can't do this. I'm failing. I'm not doing so hot. I've broken down. And you'll fall into a pit of despair. Others of you will actually think, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it really good. And you will actually think that you're doing it and doing a great job. And you'll become arrogant and prideful. Look at other people that aren't doing it as well as you are. And you'll become critical of them. So here's the funny thing is, is in the story, Jesus tells this little parable. He says, don't fall asleep. It's funny because in the very next chapter, again, this is one of the benefits of reading the whole book all the way through is that in the very next chapter, chapter 14, I mean, chapter 13, Jesus talks about stay awake, don't fall asleep. Stay awake, stay awake, stay living, be aware, because the king is going to come. He's going to bring a kingdom. And what ends up happening is in the very next chapter, chapter 14, we're told that Jesus goes into this, into the garden to pray, and he sits down with his disciples and says, here's what I want you to do, I want you to pray. I'm Four occasions, actually three of which, the third or fourth and final one, Jesus basically comes back and he sees his disciples sleeping. They've completely dropped the ball and Jesus just got finished saying, stay awake, be ready, be prepared. They failed. How'd they do that? So even, even more importantly, how in the world do you go from, you know, say Mark chapter 13 and Mark chapter 14 where they failed ultimately to Acts chapter 1, where on the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up. We're talking, this is 50 days later, all right? Two months later, two and a half months later, Peter goes from being a guy who already failed, fell asleep, did not do what Jesus asked him to do, 
And on the day of Pentecost, stands up with great, tremendous power, preaches like never before. And the way that happened is they saw Jesus do something. All throughout chapter 13 and chapter 12, Jesus is pronouncing a judgment on, on the temple. He says, judgment's going to come. He says, you want to know what judgment's going to look like? Judgment will look like earthquakes and the sun being shaded. Everything will go dark. That's what judgment will come. But you know what's amazing is later on in Mark chapter 15 and also in the latter portions of the gospel of Matthew, guess what happened? On the cross, the sun went dark and there were earthquakes. It's crazy. You know what it sounds like? A judgment. Here's what Jesus is saying. I will be judged for you. The message of Jesus coming into this world was the first coming. He would come not terrifying. He would come tender. He would come not bringing judgment, but he would come bearing your judgment. And to the degree that you see he did that for you, to the degree that you see Jesus in the garden not falling asleep for you, so that you and I, who are falling asleep, who deserve the judgment, he bore it for us. To the degree that you see he did that for you, this changes you. This turns you into what the Bible describes as a believer. You believe and trust who Jesus is. You believe and trust what Jesus said. And that also implies and also means that you believe and trust that this Jesus who came just like he promised he would the first time, die, rise again, ascend into heaven, that he will also come a second time. And if that's the case, then what that means is that if he came the first time, he will also come a second time. That means we're living in an era right now We've got work to do. We've got a mission. We've got something that's been given to us. Something that we've been entrusted with to live out. And I want to invite you into that. That's the story that Jesus draws us into. Because if Jesus came again, if Jesus came the first time, just like all the prophecies said, then we can bank everything on the fact that Jesus will come a second time, just like all the prophecies said. There will be a day of reckoning. There will be a day in which we'll face our creator. Either we can face him now in light of the fact of his grace that he bore our judgment, or one day we'll face him then and be the ones to bear our judgment. The Bible describes him as this consuming fire. Fire can be either good or bad, depending upon the substance that goes into it. If it's silver, fire, comes, fire refines silver. If it's wood, hay, and stubble, fire consumes it. Jesus has come the first time to make a family of people that are transformed into silver, that are changed, that take our hearts of stone and turn them into something alive. That's what Jesus does. He invites us into that story. I want to finish. I'm going to pray. I'm going to have the guys come up. They'll lead us in another song of worship. And I want to invite you to just sing to Jesus, to commit your heart to him. If there are those of you here today that maybe there are things in your life that God's been stirring up, things that you need to be prayed for. Maybe there's certain areas in your heart that you've not been giving over to God. Maybe there are just things in your life of disbelief. And God's challenging you, calling you, saying, trust me in these areas. We want to have some people pray for you, pray over you. If you're here 
and maybe you're sick. There's things in your life that you find yourself under the oppression of physically. Maybe it's anxieties. As a body, guys, we come together as a church to love each other, serve one another, not to just simply be spectators, not just simply be people that kind of sit back and watch, but people that are basically brought into worship. So, so if you don't need prayer, I want to invite you to sing. I want to invite you to sing as if God really is God, to sing as if God really is great, to invite you into that. So I'm going to pray. If you'd like, why don't we, in fact, why don't we all just stand I'll pray over us. We'll sing a song. If you need prayer, you can just go off to the side. We have some people that have been trained. They love to pray. They love just praying over people that are going through difficult times. They've got gifts of compassion and love and mercy. And we love to pray for you. So I'll pray. You can be prayed for, and we'll sing. Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for what you did for us. Thank you that the first time, Jesus, you came and you bore our judgment willingly, voluntarily. And so, God, we recognize this as you being a great God, a mighty God, a powerful God that makes good on your words. So, Father, help us even now to sing, worship, thanksgiving, praise to you.